be the best rugby coach you can be. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast with head coach Dan Cottrell, where you learn hints and tips from the rugby coaching community. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. My name is Dan Cottrell and with me for this podcast, I am very pleased to welcome Colin Moran, who is the Irish Rugby Football Union's Training and Education Manager. Welcome to the podcast, Colin. Thanks very much, Dan. I'm delighted to be here and I appreciate your invitation. That's okay. You may not appreciate it after some of the questions I get fired away. So we shall see. Um, Colin's been with the IRFU for 22 years and uh, has been doing his current role for eight years. And he's going to tell us a bit more about that in a moment. And I'm going to try and challenge Colin on a couple of areas which I'm sure people will be interested to hear about in terms of coaches and their roles and some of the challenges that the national governing bodies have in trying to develop coaches and coach education. So let's start, Colin, by you giving us um, a, a quick resume of how you've got to the position you're in now? Well, um, prior to working with the IRFU, I was a secondary school teacher. Um, I had studied physical education and English um, in college and was fully set for a career, I believed, in teaching. Um, It was something I was always interested in right from the start. And then the opportunity came up after about five years of teaching to um, apply for a development officer, rugby development officer position um, in Munster, where I'm from originally. Uh, so I, I went it, it, not in expectation or even really particularly looking for the role. Um, I was quite happy teaching and um, having been successful in terms of the interview, I actually initially turned it down um, because as I said I was satisfied in my teaching role and, and uh, hoping to, to settle down where I was teaching at the time. And long story short, the opportunity came back around again and uh, this time I took it. And I became a rugby development officer in Munster for a number of years, moved to Leinster in a similar position um, to be close to my now wife. Um, so I ended up moving because of her, um, was a rugby development officer in the Leinster branch and then was taken on board at national level to uh, to look after coach development and the implementation of the coach development program. That role has kind of evolved over the last number of years. And now with the appointment of our new head of coach development um, in Matthew Wilkie, we have uh, cobbled together a team of, of provincial coach development managers and myself who are basically responsible for the implementation of the IRFU's coach development program. Now, just remind me of Matthew Wilkie's background, because I'm going to ask you a supplementary question. Yeah, so... So, so Matt's uh, an Australian and um, had, came, had a lot of experience both in terms of coaching and also coach development in the Australian system. Uh, he'd done quite a lot of work with Queensland and um, came in with uh, a really fresh perspective and a new pair of eyes on what we were doing. And it just kind of synchronized nicely with some of the conversations we were having with um with personnel in, in the IRFU and, and, and across the branches about how we needed to evolve um, the coach development program to make it a little bit more leaner, a bit more simple, a bit more focused on coach needs rather than, uh, than the governing body um, needs, which I think is often the case. And Matt came in with no preconceptions and has actually really, really helped us to kind of drive that agenda. It doesn't matter where you're from or what your background is in terms of looking after a national governing body's direction in, say, coach education, it's just the suitability of your Yes, and, and, and I actually think even probably more important than the actual credentials is the philosophy and the approach. Um, for me, the danger of somebody coming in from outside, so to speak, is that you can go you can go down one of two ways, really. You can go down the way of that I'm coming in and everything has to be changed um, because I've got a new idea and forget about what's gone before. Or you can kind of immerse yourself in what's there and gradually with that knowledge start to pick apart some of the things that maybe could be done differently. 
um, because you don't have that kind of traditional connection to the program and you start asking smart questions. And I think that's what Matt has done um, very successfully, in fact. Mm-hmm. And it's helped kind of shine a light for us on things that we could do better and probably should do better. So, yeah, I, th- I think it's more so than the credentials. It's rather the approach and, uh, and that philosophy but education is education, and if you if you abide by some key principles of that, um, then I think you can bring that critical eye to, to wherever you're working. Now, if you are an aspiring coach in Ireland, and then you look ahead of you, and you look at the job opportunities, is there a danger that you think, well, I can only get to a certain level, because if I go beyond that, then I'm not only up against aspiring Irish coaches I'm up against Mm. coaches from all around the world and maybe because I'm not from Australia or New Zealand then my opportunities are going to fall away is that a fair comment to make I think it 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 certainly is a perception that's there I'm not sure if it's entirely factual um there is that kind of old cliche that you know a, a prophet is never welcome in their own home and and certainly we see um, Irish coaches doing quite well abroad, um, having left to find up those find those opportunities. I think when it comes to the high performance game, the professional game, you have to give it to the decision makers who who really are, um, you know, putting their money on the line to get the right person. That they're making those decisions um, based on what they feel is the best person to to fill that role. I think our job in terms of coach development, um, indigenous coach development, is to ensure that there are more people who are able to be part of that pool and to ensure that we provide enough um, and and appropriate development so that those individuals uh, are part of the, the, the group for consideration. Um, I think coach development maybe has failed when people um, haven't been developed to a level where uh, where they would be considered. That said, um, you know, we, we don't have to look too far to find people who are appointed to um, elite or professional positions who then turn out to be um, a terrible, <laughs> terrible appointments. And that's not, you know, that's not particularly necessarily in rugby. It, it's across all sport. So there is there is a huge challenge for those people who are making those decisions to balance the competency of that coach and the fit with the team um it isn't uh it isn't a simple you know insert a into b and you get c it, it's a much more complicated than that so i think our job is to make sure that we have the best coaches that we can produce and then hopefully then they will fit in with that requirement for whatever that team uh, appointment might be does this actually show that there is inevitably a disconnect between the high performance game and the grassroots game. Because when you get to a certain level, whatever you're going to do as a national governing body in the roles that you're at, you're never going to be able to produce, not produce them, that's that's the wrong way of thinking about it. You're not going to be in a position to create those coaches who are going to be able to do the high performance. They're going to, in a sense, create themselves. You're going to create an environment where they can possibly step up. Uh, actually, um, coach development shouldn't see high performance as the end goal anyway. It should be seeing it as a way of creating a great, a large pool of capable coaches who can look after the game and keep the game in a good place. And if it happens to produce some great coaches, fantastic. If it happens to produce a potentially World Cup winning team, fantastic. But actually, what's more important is that every Saturday and Sunday, lots of rugby is being played in the right spirit, in the right manner, and people are enjoying, to use some cultural um, approbation, uh, enjoying the crack, (laughs) and then uh, at the the end of it, that's the job done. It's not about Ireland winning the Six Nations. It's about um, more players uh, from all backgrounds enjoying the... The game that we love. I, yeah, there's there's a lot to consider in relation to that because I think um, first of all the the non high performance if we call it the development or or domestic uh, game it relies on the performance of of uh, the elite and the professional teams and the international teams to generate the revenue which allows that kind of development to go on. So I mean there is a there should be a, a very 
symbiotic relationship between what was considered to be the domestic game and what's considered to be the, the professional high performance team because actually they need the domestic uh, throughput of players and coaches and uh, the the players and coaches and the game at, at the domestic level requires the, the revenue that those international teams generate um, from success, sponsorship and so on. So th- that's the kind of, I, that's the reality in my, my mind of how we, we work together I'm not sh- so just uh, can I just jump in then so that uh, and I understand that and that makes a lot of sense yet uh, the disconnect continues to work because uh, a developmental program could be kicked kicked into touch for the very reason that uh, the team has two or three poor years yes and that may not that could be all down to the unfortunate fact that three of the best players are injured you can't do anything about that and they win, uh, they lose more than they win for a variety of reasons. And then suddenly a whole developmental part department finds themselves 20, 30, 40 staff mm. short for the next three or four years, all not based on fantastic performance uh, in the grassroots and developmental, but purely because of some poor luck and perhaps poor coaching or poor uh, running results. So the, I sense there's a danger there, uh, though I understand the realities of the cash mm. coming through. I think I think there is a danger there, um, and unfortunately, it's kind of that's the, that's the way it is. To be blunt about it. What I would say is I think evolution um, applies not just to human beings, but also to programs and to to any kind of implementation. Uh, What works well um, continues to work well and things that don't necessarily work well or at least are seen not to be worthy of continuing uh, investment are unfortunately the ones that that, that fall away. I don't think that it is... um, that the domestic game and that kind of development that happens in clubs and schools and, and for the vast majority of the participants of the game, that, that is their reality of the game. It's not watching the international team or it's not being part of the international team, at least that those programs, um, are not going to be completely swept away for, for the reason that, that I that I mentioned. Certain programs might might fall um, depending on budgets and so on. And thankfully, I'm not in a position where I have to decide where the money goes in these things. I just have to be responsible for for using the the budgets that we have, um, and to make sure that they're kind of focused on in, in the where we get the best um, best return. So it, it, it is a very uh, challenging balancing act, I'm sure, for the people who are involved in, in the financial side of things to decide what can we afford um, to, to keep and what can we uh, afford to lose. And, you know, even in terms of when there is um, a lot of money around or there's a lot of resources, it's been a very successful year, those same decisions have to be made. I think what is um, a real problem is that when money is available or when budgets are available, that they are spent for the sake of being spent. And then we end up with programs that maybe don't give a lot of return, but are seen to be doing something. And I think across the board, every sporting organization has to be very critical and focused on what exactly is this program achieving rather than just saying, look at what we have. And and, uh, there must be some measurable impact from that. What is that measurable impact? What is the return that you, if you had to say, number one, if we had one, one pound, one dollar left to spend, mm. what would be that pound, dollar money spent on? Yeah, well, obviously, from my perspective, that it would be spent on coach development. Uh, it would be our, our objective is to ensure that every team has an appropriate or has a coach who has attended an appropriate coaching course. Right, so, I'm going to stop you there then. So just that is, there is a danger there. And I know that you're going to explain it. The, just attending is ticking a box, obviously, and you have to tick boxes for various different things. However, we both know that there's far more to it than that. So if that last pound is going to be spent on coach development, what does that coach development look like? What's the first thing that that coach needs to do or be told or learn to make 
That's a yeah, I think it's it's dependent on the uh, it's dependent on the level of the game that that coach is actually uh, deployed in. We would have a different perspective um, for each uh, level of the game about what is the primary focus of the coach at that level, and we and we cater the coaching program specifically for the player. The cliche that I have is that the the coach development program should actually be a player development program in the sense that it focuses on the capacities and the needs of the player at that level of the game rather than necessarily the ambition of the coach to be able to move to a certain level and, and to, to need to know more about this and, and whatever. Um, so I think if, if I had to spend money, obviously I'm going to focus it on coach development. Did that be my, my passion and my interest? But also not just that, because I see that that's where we can get the greatest return. If we get it right at the initial coaching stages, we keep those players in love with the game. Um, and we keep the parents involved and we keep um, the relatives involved and we keep the clubs going. So getting that right for me is really, really important. Um, once we have that pool of um, interested, committed, passionate um, players and coaches indeed, then everything else on top of that is is an addition. It's the sprinkles on top um, rather than it being the actual foundation of, of, the, whole, um, of the whole game. So that, that's why I would argue very strongly in terms of the the focus of of investment uh, across programs that good coaches make good players and those good players make the game better for everybody okay then so if you had a batting order of things that a coach new to rugby yep. needs to learn what would be your top five coach new to rugby i think primarily they should because volunteers keep the game alive in 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 all sports um they should be confident that they can make a contribution i think sometimes people are nervous about putting up their hand to help uh in a club because they feel well i don't have a huge amount of experience or that what could i bring to this and i would really encourage um people who have an inkling to do that to approach their club and to be confident and give it a go so that's the first thing i would say and that's not something that you have to learn that's just a step that you have to make um primarily for new coaches i think again depending on the level they've must make the activities and the the training enjoyable for players it's it seems so simple, but if we lose sight of the fact, um, then we lose the players. If they don't enjoy coming to the to the training sessions and to the club or school, um, it's just not going to keep them in the game. So it's a brutal truth. Um, our part of our job, I think, is to be part entertainer as coaches and to make sure that um, that, that enjoyment and fun level actually has to be maintained. And uh, dare I say across all levels of the game, you know, even in professional players, who are getting paid, they, they want to be in a challenging, fun atmosphere. It's just the nature of that fun might be different than, say, for a, an eight- or nine-year-old. Is there not quite a lot of pressure on that coach uh, to try and draw some sort of analogy? There are some people who don't mind standing up and giving the best man speech mm. at a wedding uh, because everyone knows that the best man speech is supposed to be the entertainment. Yeah. You don't have to... Tell, tell everyone that you love them and that sort of thing. You tend to be tend mm. to go the other way. Now, there are plenty of others who think that the best man speech is probably one of the worst experiences <laughs> of their life. And uh, despite the fact that the audience is probably ready for a good best man speech, it's very difficult. Now, often coaches who are new to rugby um, haven't really thought about coaching rugby. They've happened to be the dad on the sideline who's played a bit of rugby before or the one who hasn't stepped away fast enough when someone says yeah. volunteers. How do you deal with that coach? I mean, some will obviously step up and love it and get straight away. But I sense from what you've said there that confidence is very important. How would you, what sort of tips would you give to that more nervous. I think, coach. well, the, again, I would push for engagement with with the, the individual's union's coach development uh, program. Some of it doesn't have to be formal. I mean, there's quite a lot of information online now and a lot of the unions have uh, guidance and suggestions and helpful tips or maybe even drills that, that, that people can uh, can reproduce. A lot, of this, a lot of the lack of confidence, it seems to me, comes from coaches who come to the game without it without necessarily a playing background and they feel then that well I don't know anything 
about the game. But actually coaching for me is not just about content because it has to be more about the approach. And I think if you're a positive and engaged individual who genuinely wants to see young players enjoy the game, um, even if it's your own children's uh, involvement, that goes a long way to actually developing that confidence and actually being successful. Again, depending on the level, as sure as you move up along, you need to have um, some technical content and expertise to be able to develop because the game demands that level of expertise. But for new coaches coming in, um, typically they're going to come into the underage section. So there might be, certainly in Ireland, we find lots of moms and dads and volunteers involved in our mini rugby program, which goes from... Uh, six years of age to 12 years of age so those people might be coming in with good intentions but they start to feel nervous about how can I work with these uh, with these players when I don't know anything well there's many many uh, crossovers in other sports so maybe they like they've got experience in in soccer or basketball or something else that they can say well here's a game or here's an activity or or whatever that I can do with these players and that kind of gets their foot in the door so to speak however the best support for these coaches, I believe is is a mentor or a trusted individual within the club or a friend who's got that little bit more experience, who outside of a formal coach development program um, provides them the support and the, and the and the impetus and the little kind of helping hand to be able to say, well, look, try this, try this, or here's a drill. You take this one over now for the last five minutes, or here's a, here's something that I've seen the other guys doing over on the other pitch. Um, and that sharing support, I think, provides dividends for the players, obviously, but also makes that coach, you know, get into their car at the end of the training session and say, that was fun and I'd like to come back next weekend. So that, that's, that informal support, I think, is key as well. I like the idea of the mentor, something that I've talked with uh, Dr. Andy Abrahams about as well. And he said one of the things that he found particularly useful when he was starting out coaching is to talk to the coach of the year ahead and say, oh, what happened there? What uh, what did you find worked? What didn't work? And I think that makes a lot of difference. Now, that, that is important within the club. How does How can, with the limited resources you have, can you sort of create that sort of environment where mentors are more available to these coaches? Because it's obviously a very powerful way. It is, I, I actually think develop. it's key. And to be honest, we talk a lot uh, here in, in the IRFU about the after sales service. Um, we get very, very good feedback, thankfully, thanks to our to great shooters and, and some uh, good uh, content on our coaching courses. We get hugely positive feedback from coaches uh, who engage formally in that course. The challenge for us then, I think, is to be able to support that coach in the weeks and months thereafter. Um, some of that, I think, can be done online, and that's become more and more of a of a, an opportunity for coaches to, to feel that they can just get that little bit more information or a little bit of help. But I have absolutely no doubt that the most powerful way is to have somebody on their shoulder in the, in the weeks and months after the, that initial coaching course. And even in the absence of a formal coaching course, for them to be able to have somebody that can ask them a question or give them a bit of advice, how a union can, can, um, can create that environment. I think there's, there's probably two ways. Um, for me, there's the formal or, or, or professional approach, which means that you have development officers who are tasked with supporting those coaches within maybe a geographical region or um, to use a, a terrible phrase in business, which I don't like uh, really using, but I, it, it's the bit most appropriate one, it seems to me, is that their client list. So they have a list of clients who are, who are rugby coaches across all levels. And they try to provide, whether it be uh, through a phone call or whether it be through face-to-face or visiting the club, some ongoing impetus to that coach's development and some momentum so that the coach feels, well, the course was fantastic, um, but that was six months ago and haven't had anything since. They need to feel um, that they've got some someone to, to pick up the phone to. That's in terms of the professional staff. Also, we've done some, um, I think, very interesting work around developing a, a community of practice. Um, so by initially setting up um, a, a platform whereby coaches could join a WhatsApp group or, or um, even just have a, a face-to-face meetings every couple of months with coaches of a similar um, level within a particular geographical region, often that has to be set up by the 
by the professional um, staff member initially. But once they pull those things together, those coaches can then, if they if they have a mind to, they can then share ideas and, and question each other and get together. And sometimes all it takes is that one person to pull those people, you know, introduce them, have a few uh, handshakes. And um, next minute, you know, you've got people who were five miles apart in two different clubs, but maybe never actually got to know each other. And now they, they, can, uh, they can share their similar experiences. I think that's really possible at that kind of developmental age and particularly when coaches realize that they need help from one another or that they need help themselves and also perhaps the focus is not so much on that that cutting edge competition um they see themselves as you know being part of rugby development rather than being my team against your team which tends to happen as you obviously as you move up the levels and which is a danger that causes more problems than it should actually create solutions because competition provides the the excitement, but of course, it can provide some of the the problems because coaches are at each yeah. literally, well, sometimes obviously at each other's throats, and they don't and they don't want to share, which is a great pity uh, because sometimes clubs fall because they don't have enough numbers because some of the clubs taken other players, and it becomes them trying to vicariously live yeah. their yeah. coaching lives and sporting lives through the the children in front of them, which is always a Great pity. Yes. So I'm I'm going back to this uh, batting order, um, and um, I think I've got number one is uh, make it enjoyable. Um, mm-hmm. And the confidence, confidence. Uh, the confidence aspect as well, I guess, is just uh, something to, to to build into that. Um, engaging with the development yes. program of the union, I think, is is a key is a key step, and I'm become more and more convinced than over the last probably 10 years um, that the approach to coaching, the more that we focus on using games rather than specific technical drills, um, I'm sure that that is the, the most important thing for coaches at, at the initial stages to learn. If they if they see the value and they're, they're, they're shown the value in terms of developing both the activity, the enjoyment, and the understanding of the game and players who, who are relatively new to it, by using games um, and and constraint based games, um, which basically is you know, setting kind of uh, challenges to the players, that those players um, will find it much more enjoyable. As will the coach. That would be my uh, my key thing. And if I had to, if I had to just have one module on every coaching course, and I had to get rid of everything else, the one thing that I would keep would be that games based approach. Now. That would that leads me nicely into the next question. You will get current coaches who've been in rugby for a while and perhaps they might have played at quite a good level. They come onto your courses. Mm. So give me a couple of things that you might have to get a current coach to unlearn. <laughs> to unlearn. Yeah, that's uh, that's interesting. Um First of all, I think we can't blame coaches for this. Again, I would have to hide the respect for people who volunteer to give something back to the game, to use that phrase. The challenge I would push back against those coaches is not to use the same approach or, in fact, even the same activities that you had experienced as a player. Uh, Guys who finish their playing career at whatever level it is come with the physical experience of um, the training that they've done themselves and I think it's too easy for them to slip into trying to apply that approach to younger players so one of the things I would try to get them to forget about is how they were coached if it is not appropriate to the level of player that they're dealing with so that's that's key for me um Unfortunately, then a lot of the players who would uh, retire from from playing themselves um, would have been products of that drill, 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 drill based approach, which I think is really quite rapidly losing um, importance um, based on the fact that the game we're talking about here in terms of rugby is about understanding and making sense of the kind of chaotic environment of a game. So I think I would encourage them to forget about this idea that you can give players a tackling drill and a passing drill and a rucking drill and a sidestep drill, and that somehow those players will put those things together into a coherent rugby um, playing experience. It just... 
it doesn't make sense to me. I think the 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 research points to the fact that players in this type of open game learn better by by playing the games, and that the drills and that kind of focused or reduced approach to to technical um, precision is kept in the back pocket of the coach for when needed. But but we shouldn't lead with those things because. Um, you know, if a, if a child goes back to uh, to their mom or dad after a training session, and the the parent says, you know, well, how was your rugby this evening? And they say, well, it was great. I was standing in a line with ten guys, and that we each took it in turns to run up and hit a bag. Um, that doesn't seem to me to be selling the the real game of rugby. Um, so that 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 would um, that would be my advice to those players. I, I just want to be clear on this stand as well because it's I always careful when I get into this kind of conversation about drills that people might legitimately throw the accusation that, well, you're saying you don't care about technical um, stuff. I'm absolutely not saying that technical rugby is not important and players must be able to tackle and must be able to, to pass and all of those bits and pieces. What I'm saying is that if their experience of the game is solely or primarily focused on those pieces, putting those pieces together into a meaningful game is is much more difficult. Um, so I think that it's, it's not to say that we shouldn't be focusing on uh, key factors and we shouldn't be focusing on, you know, how players tackle safely. Of course we should, but we have to put it in the context of the game sooner rather than later so that it has meaning for the player um, within that context because, you know, many players will learn how to pass, maybe, you know, running up and down in a, in a channel and the coach is giving them the key factors of passing and so on. And then when they see them in a game, it's so wildly removed from their experience of how they learned how to pass that the technique falls apart and goes and, uh, and completely goes out the window. So that's the balancing act. And I would primarily focus on it, you know, with safety being, um, being at the forefront of this, the quicker that a coach can get the players in some form of training that looks like rugby and looks like the real game, the context in which they're supposed to apply all of this, then the more um, better prepared that player is for that game. And that makes sense, I expect, to lots of coaches uh, who are listening in. It's that balance, which is the most di- one of the most difficult things and comes come with the experience. And I suppose the way that the courses you're running uh, now probably are trying to help coaches yeah. find that balance and find that level and you know, when to intervene and when not to intervene. And, of course, intervention and feedback is a whole different um, other part of coaching that uh, we could talk about at a later date. But I want to ask you this question because uh, I've worked very closely with the WRU, Welsh Rugby Union, and with plenty of guys at, uh, in England. And now talking to you uh, from the Irish perspective, I, I know how closely the coaching bodies do work together in the home nations, and you share a lot of resources. And I know that uh, you're all good friends and share, share a beer yeah. at coaching conferences together. Uh, yet each one has their own set of rules for mini and junior rugby or underage rugby. What I want to know is how can this be and why do you think you can't agree on a common set of progressive rules for these players. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting for for maybe coaches who are listening to this to who maybe think that, you know, Ireland, Wales, uh, England, Scotland, France would they write each other's throats all the time that we don't share um we don't share information. I think it's worthwhile, you know, repeating what, what you said that actually when it comes to areas of, of education and development we all face very, very similar challenges and, and, and the opportunity that we have to work together either as part of a, of a, a home unions group, which, I, which I'm part of with my colleagues in Wales, Scotland and England, um, or uh, at World Rugby Conferences and, and so on. That I cannot emphasize enough how important and actually how willing people are to share um, uh, either ideas or resources or even pose questions to one another. So although we sure, you know, when it comes to Six Nations or when it comes to World Cup, I know who I'll be cheering for, but um, when it comes to um, picking somebody's brain, I'm going to go to those guys who've got similar experiences. The idea of um, having kind of one set of rules is an interesting one, and and, and it it makes me think about how we kind of, um, the game evolves within the ecosystem of, of the country or, or the society in which it's in. Um, 
although we have pretty much similar uh, rules across the board, say in, in, in the home unions, those rules and regulations and the game itself uh, have evolved within the context of, of the society. So um, and it may be down to something traditional. That's the way that it's been done before. Uh, it may be down to a reflection of the the profile of the game at different levels and, and what a union has decided is important to focus on. We should you know, grow the, the female game or we should focus on under 10s. Um, the stages of development, so at, at, at what stage is you know, youth rugby at in a different country, will probably influence how the regulations of that competition um, and maybe even the rules of the game as they apply to that particular level of the game um, evolve. So I don't think it's really that strange that different countries, even though they're playing, you know, nominally the same game, would have different regulations because as I said, th- those regulations really are a reflection of how the game has developed and continues to develop in each of those in each of those sections. Uh, I would hope that, you know, sometimes it, it shouldn't just hinge perhaps on the decision of one person who's, you know, because of the particular position that they're in says, you know, I think that there should be lifting in the line out at, at, at you know, under eights. If it's down to that one individual, well, then, you know, we can very quickly get ourselves into things that are um, not objective. And uh, I think every union and certainly the guys that, I, that I've worked with in, in the other unions, their focus is on the safety and enjoyment of the players and that the competition be relevant to where those players are coming from at any at any particular stage or uh, the regulations and, and so on. So I think, you know, we need to have something that is justifiable for your own, the, your own context of the game. The difficulty, and hopefully it wouldn't, it wouldn't occur too often, but I have heard that it has happened where even within one country, you might have a region that has a different uh, regulation or a different approach to, to player um, involvement or even to how the game is run. So, you know, uncontested scrums versus contested or lifting the lineout versus not lifting in the lineout. That's problematic only when those two teams meet together. And when the coaches refuse to budge on whether they're going to allow that to happen or not. So I would hope that common sense would prevail and actually the game takes place. And what we agree is we agree the safest minimum standard rather than having people who are not prepared or players who are not prepared for certain um, level or aspects of the game to be forced to participate in that. And I'm not saying that happens, but I'm saying that, you know, when those teams come together, we would hope that the coaches would be able to have a mature conversation and say, look, we only play it like this. We play it like this. And, and we would come up with a, with an agreed standard for that particular game. I mean, to be fair, most of the, the rules are very similar. It's only on, in small areas. It seems to me that there is uh, much difference. Uh, is that your experience of it? Yeah, I, I, it's it's very small. I remember we had um, some debate some years ago about introducing lifting in the lineup for uh, under 15s, I think it was. And I looked across the other unions, had contacted the guys, and, and there was some variation, but it wasn't necessarily that guys were lifting the line out at, at under 10. Um, so there was, there was kind of some fairly clear delineation in relation to, to um, you know, various stages of the game, be it mini rugby to, to youth rugby to onto adult rugby. Where there, I think where there is greater um, change or, or, or maybe a disconnect is not so much in the laws of the game, but more in the regulations of the competition. And so, you know, if people say, well, under 14s, we play a knockout competition. Other guys say, well, we play a league competition and our eligibility when it comes to, to date of birth and, and so on. So that's where I guess it kind of gets a little bit messy. And there probably across the board could be some tightening up of what those regulations are so that we have a kind of a unifying code, certainly within a country, um, about what, you know, what uh, the eligibility rules are for participation. I think we've achieved that pretty well, certainly in, in Ireland. I'd, I'd hope to be able to say we, we have achieved that across the board. I think there's lots of difficulty in the, uh, certainly I know in England and Wales, and uh, marrying it up with the schools and private schools and various competitions that I think it is very difficult because of all the traditions that have gone before and the different standards of coaching. So some schools may be having their 
uh, pupils with um, out on rugby pitch three, four, five times a week. And that's completely different to a club side who may have one one session a week with them. So you're trying to put in a set of regulations which apply well to one group but not to another. And they're arguing quite rightly that this doesn't suit them and won't help their players progress. And it's very difficult and it's not, a, not an easy one to square the circle on the, on that one. Yeah, I, I think it's very difficult to, to have um, a unifying code across the board when the player's experience of the game is so different as it would be in our what we call our traditional rugby schools here in Ireland and the club game. Um, as you say, those rugby playing schools have a huge amount of tradition and a massive amount of success in terms of the production of players for, for high performance um, and, and in, onto our international team. But they're operating in a different environment in which, um, you know, as I said, they, they may have access to, to super facilities and to great coaches and to um, to the players, to the players who may they may be able to get to train, you know, three, four, five times a week. Um, the club guy is obviously operating in a completely different environment. So it's, it, I think it's right and proper that each of those um, strands have got regulations and indeed uh, an approach that that focuses and, and and serves their particular needs. I think that's really important. Um, then it's from the national governing body point of view, it's just a matter of making sure that the boxes are ticked when it comes to the safety and the welfare of the player. And then after everything, after that, we're kind of into, into splitting hairs. You know, I think that if an organization is responsible for governing the sport within the country, um, it should have the authority, I think, to, to, to regulate in general terms about what is what is appropriate and what's um, what's um, acceptable, and whether that be the enforcement of regulations around child protection or or guard vetting, as we call it here, which is the, the police um, background checks and so on for coaches, there are certain non-negotiables. I would say, regardless of the sector in which the um, the sport is operating, but within each sector, then you're going to have differences of of approach, as we said, and that's important because those differences create opportunities they create they are creative in themselves and it gives people a chance to breathe and there's a lot of talk these days about the fact that children don't go out and play games for themselves they have to wait until a parent allows them to do it now that has some non-negotiable important ideas about safety yet isn't it a pity that uh, kids won't just go down to the park and play a game and if it happens to be looks like rugby, then it looks like rugby. If it happens to be look like football. Or, yeah. And of course, uh, in Ireland, you've got some amazing, uh, extremely dangerous games <laughs> that you also play, which, are, uh, which have been born out of that sort of experimentation. And I always sense that there's a danger that a national governing body can actually strangle or take away some of that key oxygen which creates new opportunities creates chances for coaches to think think differently and obviously you're you're in the national governing body and you are keen to let people have their chance do you think that there's a danger that uh, there's so many rules and regulations that nobody progresses or they find it difficult to progress because of it? Oh, I, I mean, I think when it comes to coach development, you want to to remove as many barriers as possible to people having access to those programs and, and access to that education. For me, it's, it's a balance between making it um, robust. And, and obviously, there are certain statutory regulations that you can't say, well, we're not going to do that. If it's the law of the land that people working with children uh, are vetted appropriately, then that's the law of the land. That's what we have to we have to um, apply for uh, or apply. What we probably should consider better is, um, apart from the stuff that we have to do, is why are we asking coaches to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G as part of their uh, access or as part of their accreditation? Um, education should be enjoyable and challenging and engaging, but it shouldn't be off-putting. And that's something that... 
uh, certainly, in, again, in Ireland, we're looking at in terms of what we ask coaches to be able to do or what must they do in order to become um, officially accredited, or even what is the requirement for them to have access to that information. I think we've become much more democratic and open in relation to access to information because the brutal fact, and I've, I've only said this to somebody recently, and being involved in coach development as I am, really kind of challenging question for me is why should a coach attend a coaching course in this day and age where someone can sit down with a cup of coffee and look up tackling drills or scrummaging drills from all over the world and have the video there and even have somebody talking to them why should a coach attend a coaching course and when we start to think about it like that, I mean, the internet and that accessibility of information has really changed everything. And if we don't recognize the, the, the challenges that pose to us, I think we're going to be stuck way, way back in history. Um, the answer to the question in my mind is providing the, those coaching courses when coaches get together, the, the educators or the tutors that work with them have the opportunity to leverage the understanding that's in the room and to provide those face-to-face -face challenges, mentoring opportunities, um, the Q&A aspect that you don't get from just watching a video online. So for me, again, it's, it's about more than the content because I think in every field of, of education, the content is there. It's accessible at your fingertips. What is more important for me from a coach development point of view is providing those what-if scenarios. How would you cope with this? How would you cope with that? Here's a scenario I'd like you to try to work your way through. So it's actually helping and promoting that problem-solving approach, trying it, failing, trying again, failing, and then having a little bit of success. That's the opportunity we have in those face-to-face -face coach encounters that, that you don't get from a screen. So we, we, I think we need to be much more realistic about um, what we are providing the opportunities we're providing to coaches who say, I'd like to come to that course or workshop or whatever. And it's always said that it is a people business coaching. And, sure. And obviously I am in the business of helping people coaches through the internet. Yep. Uh, yet I still recognize, I think we all recognize that, that, that uh, the inference, the, the, the contact you have with other people they can just tell you something that you didn't understand by understanding your reasons behind it, your motivations for asking that question. Yes. And also, you don't always know what you're looking for when you start that. Absolutely. You, you may ask uh, one question, and really you're asking uh, a completely different question but because you just don't know how to pull it together because yeah. you're, you're still trying to make sense of your um, your your thoughts in the first place and self-reflection is is very important yet again self-reflection is extremely difficult now colin i i know that you are very busy because i've managed to squeeze you in today because <laughs> yeah. I, I think you're you're flying off filming uh something uh either this, this morning or this afternoon so just quickly tell me what you're we're doing there. Yeah, so the, the, there's been a few changes in the in the last couple of days, and I, I know I've uh, pulled you around various messages. Um, so one of the th projects I'm involved in currently is we are filming um, in conjunction with our, our medical department um, uh, some videos on the graduated return to play protocol um, post concussion for for coaches. Working with the with the the strength or the medical guys, what we've come up with is um, a, a kind of a card system or like a fold out card thing for coaches to be able to look at that that identifies the the return to play protocols on a step by step basis. But more so, it also is a resource that enables them to see what kind of activities are appropriate. So, for example, where it says um, our, our initial wording of those return to play protocols to coaches might be something like. Um, uh, tackle uh, a 50% um, pace or 50% intensity. Now, what does 50% mean? What does it look like? So we're actually trying to put together some short videos with some of our sevens players um, to be able to show a coach this is the kind of activity that we're talking about, to provide them with a little bit more support as opposed to words which may be a little bit mm, vague or, or open to interpretation. So... Um, 
yeah, so that that's that's happening actually tomorrow. It was supposed to be happening today, and then it was tomorrow, and then it's it's changed around a couple of times because it was based on the uh, the availability of the players who are obviously very busy in their own training. So that's that's a very interesting um, uh, project, and also for me, it's an important uh, connection between different departments within within the IRFU to show that you know coaching and and medical working together, or maybe something on strength and conditioning and refereeing. All of these education sectors, I think, really are, are across the board, are starting to become more um, coherent in terms of our messaging. Because I think that makes sense for for the volunteers and, and the people out in the clubs um, and schools who get this information from the national governing body. They should feel that it has a coherent message rather than receiving 20 different um, emails from various departments about, for example, concussion or, or whatever the, t- the, the kind of the topic is. Um, so, yeah, so that's that's an interesting project. Yeah, and I think that a lot of people would be very interested to see the, the outcomes of that because that is an important area. And so my son this year got concussed right. twice um, and went through all the protocols. So it was very interesting to see it firsthand it worked and it was uh, it was done very well and managed very well by the coaches they were all very sensible which was fantastic to hear yet i know of plenty of stories where it's it's not gone well and there's been uncertainty and the parents of younger players are obviously concerned about this and so it it helps do that but in the end it's i think as you said uh, uh pretty much near the start you're it's not necessarily coach development, it's player development, uh, which is very important. And the coaches are just, uh, well, they're not just uh, a small part of it, they're a major part of it, but the focus is changing. And I think that's uh, that's important. It's been brilliant. I know that um, we've, we've, we've bounced around a few uh, timings, but it's been great to catch up with you because I know you're very busy. So thank you very much for your insights. And uh, I hope I didn't, give you anything too nasty to deal with not at all and and i'm very grateful for your time and uh, i appreciate you accommodating me today as well um <laughs> in the time that was available so um look thank you very much and uh wish you all the best and look forward to talking to you again sometime okay and if uh, if uh players certainly in uh coaches certainly in ireland uh want to find out more information uh or to get get in touch What's, where's the best place for them to go if they don't know? Already? The best place for any coach who is in, either involved in the game currently or is looking to get involved as a coach would be to contact their local provincial branch, Munster, Ulster, Leinster or Connacht, and to ask to speak to the coach development manager. And they'll be able to point them in the right direction then about upcoming courses and so on. Yeah, and I know that uh, how keen, uh, well, across all the governing bodies in Ireland as well, that they're keen that coaches or potential coaches do get in touch and then they'll be pointed in the right direction. So thanks for that. So anyway, thank you everyone else. Uh, Thank you for everyone for listening in and um, I hope you enjoyed what Colin had to say and some of the ideas there, which backs up some of the ideas we've heard from other coaches and takes us into new areas as well and how important it is to make coaches better, more able and more energised to get the most out of their training, not just for the players, but for themselves as well, and create the opportunities for youngsters to be involved in rugby uh, now and in the future. So I hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you want to find out more, pop over to rugbycoachweekly.net to catch up on any other episodes you've missed. And thanks again, Colin. Thanks, Dan. And thank you all for listening, and we'll catch up with you soon. Thanks for listening to the Rugby Coach Weekly Podcast. If you want to hear more podcasts, head over to rugbycoachweekly.net and click on the Blogs tab to catch up on any episodes you've missed. We look forward to speaking to you again soon with more insights from coaches and experts from the world of rugby, sport, and learning.